Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to Conversations on Trip Education. It is Wednesday, February 17th, 2010 in the U.S., and we're sure glad that you've joined us. I'm Steve Hargadon. I'm joined by Teresa Beffa, our co-host slash intern, uh, now engaged and coming live from Germany, probably at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and we have Dan Pink with us. Welcome, Steve, Dan. Uh, it's great to be here. Sure glad you're here. Okay, so I wanted to give uh, a little shout out uh, to those who have helped to make this happen. Um, thanks to Illuminate, thanks to Charlene Bloom, C. Bloom and Associates. Uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, we sure are glad to have you here. The series is sponsored by Learn Central, which is the uh, social network for educators uh, that I run, the free network. Uh, it's part of my paid job at Illuminate. And you can see we have a fun set of uh, interviews coming up. Uh, tomorrow, Clay Shirky. Uh, next week, Kevin Johnson and Susan Manning on online education for dummies. That should be fun. February 23rd, as part of our PBS series, Henry Louis Gates on his new show, Faces of America. On the 25th, Susan Patrick is part of the Q series. Then Scott Robinson, Bernard Robin, uh, Total Recall authors, Sharon Peters on uh, Teachers Without Borders and her work in Africa, 21st Century Skills. Uh, then we're going to look at a view from the commercial side of EdTech, talk to some people who work from the vendor side and see uh, their perspective. Uh, Tony Wagner on the Global Achievement Gap, March 30th, Sir Ken Robinson, Jan Cheatham, Carl Blythe, and lots more to come. We're sure glad you're here and appreciate your, your uh, patronage. So there's that Learn Central slot I was looking for. It's the LC3, Facebook Like and Scope, Illuminate Baked In, and Easy Content Sharing. If this is your first time in Illuminate, I want to make sure that you understand this is a participative environment. So we're hoping that you will raise your hand, you'll clap, you'll smile. If you look at the bottom of the participant window, you can see some emoticons. Uh, they are how you interact unless you want to uh, put a message in the chat. You can put messages in the chat. You can put messages uh, privately to each other in the chat, but do be aware that Dan, Teresa, and I will see those because as moderators we see everything. Um, if you think that you might like to take the microphone, and with a group this size that may be harder toward the end, um, please do go up to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is working. Now this is where you get a chance to actually is where you're coming in from, where you're listening from. So look at the map, and to the left you'll see a wand with a red star. Click on that, and then click on the map to let us know where you are. And you can shout out in the chat, maybe the time and the temperature. Good, and Teresa, are you still there? Mm -hmm. Were you able to get into the other room? I did get into the other room, but uh, I think some people might, might just be double logged in in both rooms. Uh, gotcha. So, but a few people subtracted it, and we're getting more. I think we've had 20 more ads, so I think we're good to go. Okay. Well, when you are in there, let me know, and I'll um, I'll make you a moderator so you can leave messages for them. Oh, there you oh, are. I'm, I'm in there. I'm, I'm okay. double. I'm going to make you a moderator. Thanks so much for doing that. Okay, Dan, this is really a treat. And um, 
I'm, I'm, I've got to tell you that uh, as a part of preparing for talking to you tonight, I um, I read through Free Agent Nation, Hold oh My Mind, God. and Drive, and it's slut for punishment. No, it was really wonderful. Uh, it feels like there's a real thread between these books. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? I'd like to hear what you think the threat is. I think okay. you're more. Li I think you're more likely to to, to detect that threat because there isn't an explicit threat, so, you know, on my part. I'm not consciously trying to weave, uh, you know, these these fabric together in some kind of seamless way at all. Well, let me tell you what I saw, and then you can uh, tell me if it's close. In Free Agent Nation, I hear you talking about a pretty dramatic historical shift that's taking place um, for a, a couple of reasons, one of which is actually because of prosperity mm -hmm. and a change in how we view work. And, and the other sort of implied are, are the pretty dramatic changes of the internet. And I see you describing this particular group of people who have become free agents. And I see in the descriptions of them sort of the seeds of a whole new mind. Of what kind of skills they have that that allow them to be successful and to navigate these waters, and and then in drive I see you sort of looking at a larger landscape change where where and again these are my words not yours where that particular set of skills and ways of thinking are becoming the norm, and and as a part of that we need to recognize that what we've known but not implemented before now is critical to implement, and that is how we motivate people. Okay, so am I even close? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you're as close as anybody. You're closer than I am. <laughs> um, I mean, I think if there's any kind of thread, um, and I'm, I'm looking at the chat here, so thanks to the people who, um, uh, Jamie said something that he liked for Nation. That's really kind of all of you. It's a mostly forgotten book. Um, I, you know, I think that Free Agent Nation was about, in some sense, about, about how people uh, are working. Uh, I think that A Whole New Mind is, is about what people are doing at work, and Drive is about why people are doing what they're doing. So I think there, there's that kind of connective tissue uh, between, uh, uh, you know, um, that, that unite the three books. Beyond that, um, I guess in some sense one did lead to another because in researching and writing one book, I became curious about another topic. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, your net one's next book, or like in any kind of endeavor, your next project uh, is, emerges from the seeds of the previous one because you have an unanswered question or there's some unresolved issue. But um, I think your analysis is as, as shrewd and sharp as any I've heard. Well, it, it sure feels like a very, go ahead. <laughs> well, that may be giving me more credit than I deserve. <laughs> um, so the basic idea of DRIVE is that there's a mismatch between what science knows and what business does. Now, uh, isn't that true in a lot of areas of our lives? In fact, uh, huh. it almost occurred to me that that's kind of a prevalent part of our nature. Huh. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, I never thought about that. It, it, I think it. I think it could be. In in this case, 
Although, you know, not, not so much to say in, in, in medicine. I mean, I think that a lot of physicians and a lot of medical professionals will look at the latest science and at least in some ways try to change their practice based on what we know about science. Uh, in this realm, uh, it's proven a little bit more stubborn because there's this notion out there that if you want people to perform well, then the best thing you can do is to offer them this set of carrots and sticks, this very elaborate system of rewards and punishments. And there is some truth to that. That is, for relatively simple, straightforward tasks, those carrot and stick motivators are, you know, work pretty well. Um, uh, but the problem is, is that as more people do more creative work, more conceptual work, uh, work that requires beyond kind of basic rudimentary algorithmic skills, uh, the science is pretty clear that those kinds of motivators, those if-then motivators, if, Steve, you do this, then you'll get that, uh, they don't work very well. And the problem, as I see it, is that especially in business, and that's what I mostly write about. I mean, I know you're, most of your, your folks here want to talk about education, which is cool. Uh, I mean, I write mostly about, about business. Uh, the problem is, is that in, in our businesses, when we see these sorts of motivational schemes failing, when we offer if-then motivators and they don't work very well, our reaction to that is not to call into question that type of motivator, but basically to do more of it. You know, to say, okay, well, that wasn't a sufficiently rich contingent motivator. Let's raise the stakes a little bit. Let's add more carrots. Let's add sweeter carrots. Let's sharpen the stick. Let's beat people with a stick four times rather than three times. And so there's this weird reaction where, where we end up trying to do more intensely something that demonstrably doesn't work. And I find that kind of frustrating because I think the science, is, as you know from looking at the book, the science is pretty darn clear about this. Well, so you're describing something that I remember reading in Deming and McGregor and even yeah. Alfie Cohn. Yeah, sure. And so all of whom, um, all of whom are mentioned in, in, in this book drive, absolutely. That's... So I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. So uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious as to uh, what's what's taking place right now that would allow us to change. Uh, because 15 years ago, there were people saying the same thing. Have we learned something different, or is there, are we at a different moment in time where we could actually take advantage of this? I think it's both. I think it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned um, uh, uh, McGregor. Uh, Douglas McGregor, for those of you who on the call who don't know, is a, a former president of, of uh, Antioch College. He was a professor at MIT in the management school there. He wrote a book in the early 1960s called The Human Side of Enterprise that said, uh, it's a fascinating and very insightful book that essentially said, you know, if you believe that people are passive and inert, you have one style of management. If you believe that people are actually active and engaged, you have another style of management. Uh, and you should believe that people are active and engaged uh, because that's how most people are, and yet we believe that people are passive and inert, and if that's your starting point, then you're going to come up with a whole range of very kind of controlling mechanisms for, for management. So he was ahead of his time, and, and, and his book actually had some influence. Uh, it's taught in a lot of MBA programs and then just essentially discarded when uh, the rubber meets the road and people actually go into businesses. Uh, Alfie Cohn has been talking about this in the realm of education for a very long time. I mean, his book, uh, Punished by Rewards, uh, came out nearly 20 years ago, and he's been doing some, you know, really interesting, really smart, really forward-looking 
uh, forward-looking work on this. I think one of the things that has changed, I guess there are two things that have changed that go to your question, Steve. The first is that the body of research and evidence on this continues to pile up. And it's not only psychologists now, it is economists. Uh, economists who believe, you know, who's, who took it, when they took economics, assuming that they're my age, the starting premise of economics was that we were rational calculators of our economic self-interest and we always did what was in our economic self-interest and that's how, that's how things work. Uh, the rise of behavioral economics it calls that into question. Uh, and now you have a, a, a growing body of research in the field of economics calling into question this idea that rewards always lead to better behavior. The second thing I think for us most more significant thing going on is that I think the nature of, of work has changed dramatically since certainly McGregor's time. And as I was mentioning earlier, that, that for, for work that is you know, simple, routine, rule-based, algorithmic, whether that's blue-collar work, whether you're turning the same screw the same way over and over, or white-collar work where you're processing paper or adding up columns of figures, uh, the, the, the classic kind of carrot and stick motivators, they're okay for, I mean, we, we could argue the morality of it, but they're actually pretty effective for that. Uh, there might be more effective ways to do it, but they kind of sort of work. Um, the problem is, is that fewer of us in the workplace are doing that routine algorithmic work. Most of it has disappeared or to other countries or been automated. And this is true of blue collar work and white collar work. And so I think one of the things that's happened, especially after the last, you know, if you think about the first decade of the 21st century, it was one of the most spectacularly, you know, it's this era of just spectacular underachievement. Uh, and I think that, you know, there's a sense out there that things have gone awry and that, that we, we don't need to change the intensity of what we're doing. We need to change the actual form and quality of it. Um, and so I think the combination of those things, which is, you know, a, a, an added body of research and this fundamental shift in what people do for a living um, makes the time right for a rethinking of how we motivate people. That, and, and if you add in a financial collapse and the sense that we've wasted a decade, uh, I think that ups the ante. So we're getting, a, this is a large audience, so we're getting a lot of chat. If you're feeling frustrated because you can't see the chat, go up to view layouts and switch to the wide layout and you'll get a better view of the chat. I should have told, the, told you all earlier that was the case, but that's an easier way to watch the chat. Dan, um, I'm watching something really interesting happen in education and I would almost call it a, a, a grassroots revolution. Hmm. The technologies of the internet are allowing educators to connect and collaborate with each other, to innovate, to share those innovations, and it feels as though there's a power shift that teachers are now, in fact, the Educon conference that Chris Lehman holds in Philadelphia is kind of an outgrowth of a shift where where grassroots educators are talking about what they think education should be and then getting together to figure out how to try and make that happen. Is there a, does the internet play a role here? Is this part of a, a power shift as well because the previous forms of power aren't going to work in an era of mass communication? I think it very well could be. Uh, when you say power shifts though, Steve, a, a shift from, so what entity to what entity? A shift from you know, a, a shift is a shift from A to B. So tell me what A is and tell me what B is. Okay, so in education, so in business it would be uh, a shift from the power of um, uh, capital 
and um, marketing to authentic relationships. Okay, I, I think that's right, actually, yeah. And in education, it would be a shift from centralized, standardized education to kind of grassroots efforts. Yeah. Uh, there I see a little bit more. There I see a little bit more tension because I think what you see happening in education. I think there's a disconnect there between education policy and what educators are doing or yearning to do. Um, I think that that what the Chris Laymans of the word, world are doing or what you're doing or what you know, a lot of the real innovators are doing is that much more grassroots rethinking of, of, of how kids learn and what, how we can use technology to facilitate that and what is the purpose of schools and, and what can teachers do in a world where information and facts are ubiquitous. I think there's some of the smartest people, most public spirited people in the country are engaged in that conversation. The, you know, uh, you know, Chris and you and you know, countless other people. Um, however, I think when you look at the policy level, uh, you actually see a push toward centralization. You see a push toward standardization. You see a push toward routinization. Um, and there, I think it's a it's a powerful disconnect, if not an outright antagonism between those two those those two forces. So isn't that interesting? It's almost like the death throes. It's like the final. It's like the um, RIAA kind of. <laughs> you become the, you become the entity trying to protect yourself rather than figuring out how learning is changing. Maybe that's too dramatic. Um, it could be. It, I think there's. I think there's some of that. Uh, I, you know, I just think there's, I also think, you know, if we're talking about disconnects, and that was this, the start of this conversation, uh, I, I think that there's also a disconnect not only between those, you know, let's call it what you're describing, grassroots world and, and policy world. I think that what you also see is a, is, a, is a disconnect between the people who are in the classroom doing the hard work and the people who are setting policy. There's a big disconnect between those two worlds. And I think that's the source of, of, um, of, of, of some of the problems. The other thing is that I also see this kind of dangerous tendency out there to uh, in some ways uh, deify the private sector approach to things. And so if we say, oh, if we just run this like a business, all will be better. And you know, that means importing these kind of Wall Street style incentives for inside of classrooms, for both for kids and for teachers. Things that demonstrably haven't worked let's, on Wall Street. Well, let's try them in a less intense form in inside of our classrooms. And so I, I really do see this this broader this this um, this broader disconnect out there. And I'm not sure how to exactly how to bridge that disconnect. Although I think what it essentially amounts to is it amounts to, in some ways, a battle for the hearts and minds of people who aren't engaged in the conversation as intimately as you are about whether we're going to go in this direction of routinization, standardization, or whether we're going to go in this way in this more uh, grassroots uh, entrepreneurial uh, technology-enabled direction. This is really fun. Dan, I'm so glad you're here. Okay, so I listened to your TED and, Talk. And I just thought, I mean, I, and, and I think <laughs> one, of your, one, of your, one of the people in the chat, I'm trying my best. Oh, so I'm hard. trying my best not to look at the chat because on the world. Don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm checking the chat for you. I'm the world's worst. Well, I'm just so curious about how, what people, it's sort of like mind reading. So, you know, you can see what people, are, see what people are thinking. The problem is in the, in the back channel is that um, I guess my brain is too old to be able to 
follow the back channel and have a conversation with Steve. So I'm literally consciously not looking at the chat. But I did peek <laughs> at the chat, and I saw somebody make a really smart comment, which is that, you know, I don't know the numbers here, but my hunch would be that virtually no legislators at the state, certainly at the federal level, uh, are teachers. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem, too. Okay, so this uh, we're, we're gonna uh, we have way more than the half hour. And left. I am, as Greg Bourne says, I am a digital immigrant. <laughs> well, I I'm think a digital it, native, and it, I'm having problems. Does that help? <laughs> no, I am a digital immigrant. I I admit that. I actually read physical newspapers. I'm a relic. So Dan, you need to watch the segment from uh, Frontline's Digital Nation, where they actually went to Stanford, and the guy is looking at multitasking. And as it turns out, scientifically, you're going to appreciate this, those who think they're the best multitaskers actually turn out to be the worst. <laughs> okay. And is the converse true that those who think they're terrible multitaskers actually are incredibly skilled and powerful multitaskers in reality? No, the truth no, is that right. nobody Don't. multitasks. Yeah. That the brain just doesn't multitask. Yeah. Hey, so you, I listened to your TED Talk, and you said that this was not about emotion. But you sure sounded passionate to me. Well, so, I mean, you know, I was. Here's the thing, you know, for all of the the stuff that I write, and as you know from reading the books, I mean, I am probably the most kind of, you know, uh, uh, unhip, logical, linear, uh, nerdy person you could possibly imagine. Um, and you know, I get a little bit upset when people are mean to each other. Uh, but I get a lot of upset when people do things that are illogical. And what, what, what really drives me crazy, what makes me really crazy about all of this, is that uh, the science is very, very clear. And there's this notion out there that businesses, you know, they, 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 many businesses portray themselves as these resolutely hard-headed, data-oriented, we're tough, we follow the facts. Uh, and what they're doing with regard to motivation is they're operating based on folklore. They're operating based on false assumptions. They're operating based on un outdated premises. And they're not actually being hard-headed. And I think if we're hard-headed, this world, as you know from reading the book Drive, is a, is a wash in paradoxes. But I think if we really want to be hard-headed about it, it's going to take us to some, what seem to be some very soft-hearted conclusions, which is that what we really need to do for enduring motivation, both in the workplace and at school, uh, is foster this, this deeper sense of self-direction, this deeper sense of making progress, this deeper sense of, of purpose. That for the things that really matter, that's the pathway to high performance, uh, not these things that seem superficially to be very hard-headed. And so the logic of it is really the thing that makes me want to tear what's left of my hair out. So I often hear people talk about student-directed education, and I can yeah. feel people stiffen up. But if you present it as internally motivated education, doesn't that better describe what you're trying to communicate about education? That it that without context, without desire, that it uh, that we're not doing what we could be doing. Uh, maybe uh, I think that's part of it. I think that you know that a lot of times uh, labels in this realm and in 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 business as well. Something I know far more than education. Uh, you know, are often can be uh, misleading. So, you know, I, I, I basically have never encountered, and again, you know, as you know, Steve, I'm not an educator. I'm not an expert in education at all. 
I've had the good fortune of, you know, working with a few uh, educators and talking to a few educators over the last couple of years. It's been a, you know, delight and I've learned a huge amount. Uh, but I'm not an expert in this, but I have yet to encounter any school system, any group of educators who doesn't think they do project-based learning, <laughs> you know? And so everybody thinks they do project, we do project-based learning. And, and so I think a lot of these labels don't really mean a heck of a lot. And so whether we call it student-centered or um, uh, whether we call it intrinsically motivated, I think what really matters is that there is, uh, that, 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 that kids are, are doing stuff that they're interested in, that we're tapping that drive to do stuff because it's fascinating, we're tapping that curiosity, uh, we're, we're encouraging a sense of, of, of rigor, but rigor that comes from the internal desire for mastery, not from the external demand for compliance uh, where, where kids are, are motivated because they understand how it all fits together, uh, where kids are motivated by the joy of learning itself. Um, you know, and those are things that I think, you know, are that, that, that the very best educators have been, have been, have really been fighting for. But the trouble is they've been fighting for it uh, in a system that often suffocates that. So is this part of the same story? Um, I'm thinking that it's Seth Godin in Lynchpin who talks about franchising and how franchising is designed to uh, not require anybody with greater with with us significant individual skills. So is the have we created an educational system that's about control and systematizing rather than being about rigor? Uh, I think in some I, I, I I think in some cases, yes, absolutely. I think that there is a, a kind of false sense of rigor. That is, um, we, we think of, of rigor not in the way that a great athlete or great musician would do it, we think of it, which is basically working extremely hard, hard to get better at something, uh, testing your limits. But we think of rigor as doing stuff that's really, really boring over and over again. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's my takeaway quote. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like it's sort of like fake rigor, you know. It's like, you know, if it's you know, if you don't hate it, it's not rigorous. Um, and you know, and I actually think that that students, you know, many students, not all, because you know, we have a whole mix of students in the education system. But I think that many students would well, would, would embrace rigor, and that we're actually in some ways selling them short. Uh, I, I'll give you an interesting example of this, Steve. I, I was talking to. Um, it just so happened I was talking to a, uh, a, a teacher on Saturday, and I was saying, if you, if you really concerned about, let me take two steps back, if you're really concerned about mastery, uh, anybody who, who's interested in achieving mastery, which is I think one of the big motivators out there, uh, that person has to have feedback, regular feedback. And the problem in the workplace is that, you know, we have these performance reviews where you get feedback once a year, which is a joke. You're never going to achieve mastery in anything if you don't get if you get feedback once a year. Just think about any great athlete or a great musician trying to get better and getting feedback once a year. It's comical. Uh, and so I was saying is that you know people need to take back their performance reviews, do their own performance reviews. And I was saying to the teacher, I said, and I actually think that that you know one of the habits that I would like to teach my kids, and I think is helpful for a lot of uh, people, you know, whether they're uh, uh, children, uh, young adults, or you know, old men like me, is to have the capacity for self-assessment, to uh, uh, set one's own goals, set one's own standards, get establish mechanisms to get your own 
feedback. And, and you can do that with something akin to like a do-it-yourself report card where the student would, he or she would set out his or her goals at the beginning of a semester uh, and then monitor, you know, watch their progress and then give them, and then self-evaluate and compare that self-evaluation to what the teacher's evaluation is. Uh, this is being done at some schools. And the point of all this, Steve, is that, is that this teacher said to me, I do that. Okay, and something, I started doing that. I, I started having the kids self-assess. And one of the things that was so interesting is that they were harder on themselves than I was. That is, they were actually, had higher standards for themselves than I was actually offering for them. That they were so deeply concerned about, you know, getting better that they were actually fiercer critics of their performance and their progress. Um, and so, you know, and so at one level I'm surprised by that. On another level, I'm not because human beings are, you know, mastery and engagement-seeking missiles. Uh, we want to get better at stuff. We want to get better at stuff and achieve mastery for the sake of achieving mastery and getting better at stuff for its own rewards. It's a very powerful motivator, and the the evidence on this is just in a whole number of ranges of of, of life, not only education. The, the the evidence of this is just powerful. That is, if you deny people that, that, that search for engagement and mastery, they're going to do what they can to find it somewhere else. How important would you like this book to be? What would be your sort of ideal path at this point for people's um, awareness of it and use of it? Uh, well, you know, as you know, I, you know this, is, this is mostly a book uh, about business and, and mostly a book, I, you know, that's aimed toward, uh, toward, toward business people. And, you know, I don't have any false hope about what a, a book can achieve. To me, what a book can achieve, a, a book is a successful book uh, if, in some ways, only if it triggers conversations. So my goal in this is to give people maybe a slightly different lens through which to look at what they're doing. And then maybe a tool or a tip or like one small thing they can do in their life to change it for a little bit for the better. But more important than that is what's going on here is that um, the books that really matter are books that trigger conversations. And I'm convinced that, you know, and, and, I, and I've said this before and I'll, I'll say it probably until my dying day, uh, that uh, the world changes conversation by conversation. Conversations are, are what change the world. Every good thing began with a conversation. If you think about it, every great romance, every great love affair, every, they all began with a conversation. Every um, uh, great uh, uh, entrepreneurial adventure, every great entrepreneurial venture started with a conversation. Every great social movement started with a conversation. Um, and that's what, um, that's what really changes the world. And so if I can trigger the kind of conversation that we're having or the kind of conversation that's going on in the back channel that I'm not watching, uh, then we begin to move the needle, you know, a, a few millimeters. Uh, and over time, it moves a few centimeters, and over time, it might actually move in a significant way. I love that answer. And obviously, owning the domain name conversations.net, I agree. <laughs> but I, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm like, I, Steve, I, I think we just got the answer. I, I, We've been looking for. I, I have to say that I did not even make that connection. I feel like an idiot, but I did not make that connection. But that's, uh, I really do believe that. Conversations are what changes change the world. And, and if you really take anything great, uh, you, can, you can trace it back. Uh, its origin is a conversation. 
you know, Dan, you're providing me with uh, an enormous amount of scribble fodder on my notepad here. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and actually get That's these quotes down verbatim. But uh, this is really fun, and, and, I, and, I, and I hope that we are doing exactly what you described. Hey, tell me what kind of pushback, if any, you're getting to the concepts in Drive. Um, not a huge amount, actually. I mean, it's most only been out for six or seven weeks, so there's you know there's time to um, there's time to you know for people to push back at a, a in a more ferocious level. I think that the one pushback that I'm I, I'm getting is that. This might be true for some people. This, this, you know, the argument here, as you know, is, is that um, if you really want effective enduring performance, uh, you've got to focus not on our biological drive or on our reward and punishment drive, but on our third drive, our desire to do stuff because it matters, because it's interesting, uh, you know, out of a sense, uh, because it's its own reward, because it contributes to things. Uh, and the pushback, such as I've gotten so far, is uh, that might be right, but that's only right for some people. That other people, there's some people out there that just won't ever do this. That some people out there are not going to do a damn thing unless you threaten them with a stick or entice them with a carrot. Uh, and that's the kind of, you know, that's what, and I, I don't buy that, but that's some of the pushback that I've, um, that, that I've gotten, which is basically saying you're right for some people, but there are other people who are just hopeless who are inherently passive and inert, and there's just no way this is ever going to work for them. And for those people, which some people would say are the majority of people, uh, we have to resort to this more mechanistic approach to motivation. So I wonder if there isn't some truth to that in, in, in the sense that I feel as though we're going through a shift where different segments of society or different kinds of personalities are uh, becoming more preeminent or uh, rewarded, meaning I can remember 20 years ago working under Douglas McGregor and um, Deming philosophies and, and really getting pushback and having it be very hard, mm. where I'm seeing a lot of that happen now and it feels like it's more accepted. So, or, or if you think in the school environment, students who did very well under the, the drill philosophy uh, who, who are now not necessarily huh. going to do as well. So is there possibly uh, you know, a little bit of a shift going on in terms of what kinds of personalities are going to thrive? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's so much a, a kind of personality. I, I think that it's, it's – um, I think that there are – because you know, personality is, is somewhat fixed. I, I think it's in some ways uh, a set of attitudes or a, a, an approach to life that – um, uh, might have worked in the past that works less well in in today's world. Um, so you know things like uh, 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 tolerance for ambiguity. That is, if you were comfortable with ambiguity, if you're comfortable with ambiguity. You're unlikely. You're, you're not going to do as well on a multiple choice test, for instance. Um, but I think that today the returns to being comfortable with ambiguity are more profound than that. So I think that's you know so that so if you think about that as an attitude, saying I hate ambiguity or I'm comfortable with ambiguity. I think that if you actually try to banish ambiguity, that's actually a pretty good mechanism for a world of routines and right answers and standardization. 
Uh, I, I, and if you're comfortable with ambiguity, if you're seeing nuance and different sides of things, that's probably less uh, advantageous uh, for a world of routines, right answers, and standardization. Uh, I think the converse is true now, so that if you're not comfortable with ambiguity, I think you're going to have a, a difficult time. And in some ways, if we go back to our education system, uh, our education system is designed essentially to extinguish uh, any kind of ambiguity. That makes sense in some, in, you know, in, in, in some instances. For instance, you know, the multiplication tables. 9 times 3 is 27. It's not, well, it's a little ambiguous. I'm not sure it's 27. Maybe it's 26. I mean, it's 27. Um, but there are, fewer, there are fewer things that are that are like that. And so people who are willing to tolerate ambiguity, who are willing to deal with things that aren't perfectly clearly defined, who are, are, are willing to look at a range of possible answers and solutions, none of which are perfect, uh, I think that that sort of tolerance for murkiness is, is more advantageous today than it's ever been and might have been a liability in the past. It does feel like we're undergoing kind of a cultural negotiation around these topics. And, mm -hmm. and I even feel like in the last few years that we're, we're talking more than we did before. I love it that you uh, mentioned Apache and, and open source software. Sure. Uh, you know, as part of your new operating system. <laughs> I, was just, I love that portion of the book. We probably don't have time to drill down, but I did want to give you a chance to talk about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Sure. Uh, I mean, those, I think, are the building blocks of, uh, at least what the science shows, are the building blocks of uh, effective, enduring motivation, particularly for more uh, complicated, uh, creative, uh, sophisticated tasks. And so autonomy is our, really our desire for self-direction. Um, that is, uh, a lot of our systems in business uh, were designed to get compliance. Management is basically a technology. If you think about Gary Hamill, the great management scholar, has, has said management uh, is a technology. And I, and I think it's a nice way to put it. Uh, it's a technology that's very effective for getting compliance, for getting people to comply. It's not a very good technology for getting people to engage. And, and I think that self-direction is a better way to, get, to foster engagement. Uh, and so you have companies doing a lot of really interesting things in the world of self-direction. So, giving ra almost radical amounts of autonomy to people to do what they want, the way they want, how they want it, when they want it, uh, with whomever they want. So it seems like these really cool one-day sessions called FedEx days that one company is doing where you have 24 hours to work on anything you want, any way you want, and you just have to show the results to the rest of the company at the end of that 24 hours. Uh, you have companies uh, experimenting with giving people a certain amount of time to do whatever they want. Uh, companies experimenting with radically flexible schedules and things like that. Uh, places like Zappos, the shoe company, running call centers with, by throwing out scripts and monitoring and, and timing people uh, in order to engage even their call center employees in customer service. And so, you know, I, I really think if you want engagement, self-direction is the pathway there. If you think about something like mastery, which we talked a little bit about, mastery is our desire to get better at stuff. Uh, and there's some very interesting research just reported in Harvard Business Review last week, last month. Um, that show it's a very, very interesting study done by a researcher at Harvard named Teresa Mobley who uh, looked at uh, had a, a, several thousand workers at, in some companies uh, keep day-to-day -day diaries of their mood, their subjective well-being, their sense of satisfaction, uh, you know, every single day. And she found you know massive amount of data. Uh, 
and she, 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 she scrutinized that and found that the, the days that people felt the best, the days that people had the highest sense of satisfaction, highest level of engagement, felt the most motivated, were the days when they were making progress. They were making progress. Not big, bold, dramatic progress necessarily, because we're talking about one day, but making progress. That, that, you know, we're, we we want to make progress. We want to get better at stuff. And this is where, Steve, open source comes in. Because if you think about something like Linux or Apache, here you have these incredibly technically sophisticated, often these very technically sophisticated people, people with jobs that, that are, that where they're getting paid. Uh, but their desire for mastery is so great that they take their limited amount of discretionary time to work, to do equally, if not more technically sophisticated work for someone who's not their employer for free. Uh, it's just amazing. I mean, it would have been, it would have seemed when I first studied economics in the early 1980s, that idea, the idea that you could have a business model for creating software where people around the world worked for free and gave away their product would have been seen as essentially theoretically impossible. Um, and yet you ha you've got this open source movement that is powerful. Uh, and what's driving that very much is this quest for mastery. And the final thing is purpose. Uh, we want to be part of something larger than ourselves. Uh, and uh, I think that there's a, there's a widespread search, especially in this country, but some other countries as well, uh, for meaning, for purpose, for significance. And I think it's true uh, among all the way from baby boomers down to, down to our kids. I think we want to know what it's all about. We want to be part of something larger than ourselves. Uh, this very narrow band focus on uh, whether it's I, me, mine, or on our own little narrow slice is, is, um, is insufficient. I had a very interesting conversation today. Uh, doing some stuff for the Washington Board of Trade here in Washington, D.C., and the head of the Washington Board of Trade was saying that he has employers, private sector employers here in Washington, saying to him, we are losing people to the government. That's never happened before. People are choosing to work for the government instead of private sector. And when we ask them why, the reason is they want to do something that matters. It's a sense of patriotism, a sense of giving back. And so you have even now in this city here in Washington, my hometown, you have uh, – you know, private sector companies looking to say, okay, what can we do to show that we're purpose-driven as, uh, as much as the government? And so, um, you know, I think that those three things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, the science shows, and I think our, our experience confirms, are, are really what leads to, um, are really what leads to um, um, a sense of, of, um, of, um, enduring motivation. And I see somebody on the, on the chat room responded about, about government, that it was a search for security. Um, there's a little bit of that. Actually, when they, when they probed this, actually, the, it was less about this kind of security than it, more than it was about the kind of, uh, more about sort of the predictability of work hours, if you can believe that. Um, it wasn't necessarily long-term job security, because actually here in Washington, particularly the federal government, uh, I'm not sure if people necessarily buy that uh, so much. Uh, in a world of towering, uh, seemingly endless budget deficits. So you're not going to know this about me, Dan, but I run the open source speaker series for a number of uh, ed tech conferences, and I've spoken, oh, about, yeah, open, yeah. spoken about open source for, for years now. And it, it's been very interesting to watch the change in understanding the motivation for open source that's come from people beginning to understand Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Because as Wikipedia has entered our collective consciousness, it's sort of manifested to us, I think, the very things that you're talking about, what would actually drive people to work on a project like this. And then the light bulb goes off. Oh, that's why someone would contribute to an open source project. Yeah. Be a part of that. 
Uh, Clay Shirt. Well, I did. I did. I did a story. I did a story long ago, uh, uh, probably six or seven years ago, when Wikipedia first was gaining a little bit of prominence. I did a story for Wired. Uh, the headline is the headline: "The book stops here." And basically, what my editor said to do is, okay, there's this thing called Wikipedia we keep hearing about, where anybody can do anything they want. How could this possibly work? Um, why would anybody do this? And I went out and talked to a number of, of, of Wikipedians for this story. And I remember going to talk to this guy. And I, I've forgotten his name. But he lived basically in a trailer in northern New Mexico uh, where he had these elaborate files about public art. And this guy was just passionately interested in public art, you know, sort of uh, you know, big sculptures that are in downtown plazas in the U.S. or in, uh, in front of uh, office, you know, commissioned to go in front of office buildings and so forth. And this guy was passionately interested in, in public art. He had these big files out, and he loved writing about it. He wasn't getting paid a cent. He just loved public art more than anything and wanted to tell the world about it. He wanted to show his mastery. He wanted to do it his own way. Uh, he felt he was contributing to something larger than, themse than himself. And I was really blown away by that, about, how, about sort of how public-spirited and how mastery-oriented these, these, these people were. Um, and that, that the collective force of that was uh, profound. Okay, so we're going to go to Q&A. Uh, Dan, while we're shifting gears here, uh, I hope you'll think about what we might do for you, meaning if there's a way that Future of Education or Conversations.net or this audience uh, can make a difference for you, I hope you'll let us know. We'll okay. kind of give you the chance to, to, uh, to cast a check with us. So if you'd like to ask Dan a question, this is a good time to do so. I think Teresa's been trying to capture some from the chat. You can also raise your hand by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow. It's the icon at the bottom of your participant window. Or put your question in the chat again. If you do raise your hand, we'll give you the microphone. So be sure to test that your microphone's working out by Tools Audio and Audio Setup Wizard. So Teresa, do we have any questions you'd like to start us with? Do we, do we have any questions? I mean, I think we have like 100 questions. <laughs> so I've tried to <laughs> tried to pick the ones that I think were kind of multiple. Um, one of them was, with regards to um, assessment and your students, like how do you teach these mechanisms, these assessments for the for the DIY? Do it yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. I, I think that we're kind of making it up as we as we as we go along. Um, I, I, and I think that's one of the things that makes it kind of uh, exciting. Uh, I, I think you try to figure out a way to do it and see if it works, and then refine it and see if it works and refine it. And so I think even the idea of creating the mechanism itself. Uh, can be a learning experience for, for people. What I do is, um, for, for myself, and I'm not saying this is the, the way to do it, is uh, I've started trying to do this on, on my own, is you know, at the beginning of the month say, okay, here's what I want to try to accomplish. And I don't mean, you know, um, I mean sometimes it's, it would be, you know, I want to make sure I write 2,000 words or 4,000 words or something like that. Um, sometimes it's I want to learn more about a particular topic or I want to stop doing X, Y, or Z. Um, and you know, put out you know just a handful of, uh, of 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 objectives, goals, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then uh, at the end of the month, I'll see you know whether I had made any progress. But there isn't you know there isn't sort of a set of questions that I ask myself. Maybe there should be, uh, but it's really just um, uh, setting out the goals and and seeing whether at the end of the month you're any closer to them. Um, but uh, so, you know, I, I guess there's a little bit of, I mean, the way that I do it at least is somewhat half-assed, but I think this is something that we're making up as we go along. 
And so I think it could be really useful. You raise, a, really adapting, interesting point. So. You raise, a, you raise a really uh, interesting point, though, about whether there's a way to um, uh, I hadn't thought about whether there's a way to systematize this a little bit, so you can provide a little you, bit of structure, that, and, yeah, yeah. a little bit of structure and scalability for it. It's a, it makes perfect sense. Because maybe you've got that six, you've got a sixth grader class, or even you know sixth graders, even in twenty-five year olds, they get out of college and then they're going into the workforce. Yeah. You know, how can they progress over time and, and adapt yeah. and say, okay, you know, because you're learning new skills, you're learning what? more about yourself, you're learning about the world around you. Yeah, one particular question that I found really useful is, and it's a, it's a specific question, is you know, what tools or information um, do I need to do better? Um, that is, a lot of times when you assess your performance uh, and you come up short or come up not as great as you wanted, it isn't necessarily because of some kind of personal inadequacy. Uh, it could be because of some situational, contextual thing, like, oh, you just don't have the information or you just don't have the tools. Uh, and I find that a really interesting. Actually, just asking the question, like, like you just said. Yeah. I think that's just So, so maybe there is a way. I, a there's, there's probably, it's a very interesting point. There's probably a way to collect, you know, you know what are the uh, 3, 5, uh, 8, 12, uh, uh, you know, most important self-assessment questions for, uh, individual performance at work or at school. It's a great. It's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. I think that makes a lot of sense. We could do an. We could do an open source group, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that it's possibly wikiable. I think yeah. it is wikiable. Yeah. The wiki. Yeah. It is for sure. Okay. Uh, was there anybody that wanted to ask a question? Answer. I mean, actually, physically ask. I thought so. Okay. So Hunt, I'm going to give you the microphone. To turn your mic on, you click on the larger micro. There you go. I think I got it. Um, Dan, I wrote you earlier this week. Uh, I'm the guy who uh, said that grades had really essentially messed me up through college. And I, I just <laughs> would like you to comment a little bit on that because, you know, my feeling, I, I've been teaching for 25 years and the rest of my life basically I've been a student. And uh, it, it just seems to me that, you know, grades make motivation outside and they make it something that's totally separate from the student. And one thing is that if you can get kids to self-assess, it puts you as a teacher more in the role of coach. Like, I'm helping yeah. you reach your goal by giving you a reality check, and that's really totally different than saying I'm trying to meet this exterior set of standards that someone either like grades me like me, like you're this grade or that grade. And it seems that that whole thinking is rooted in factory style, you know, conceptualizations of school. And I, I just wonder what is, you know, how can we start getting beyond that, and how can we, you know, make that something people understand and take seriously? Okay, that's the end of my question. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good question. I think that your analysis of it is is really spot on about how self-assessment puts the teacher in a very different, or the instructor in a very different role. Uh, I think it's, it's, you know what happened, uh, I, 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 asked, I asked this uh, question to um, two of the heroes of this book, Drive, are a guy uh, named uh, Edward D.C. and a guy named Richard Ryan, uh, both at the University of Rochester. And I asked them this very question in, in one of my interviews with them. I said, well, so what do you guys do with grades? And both of them said, basically, you know, Put, almost put, not, not quite literally, but sort of metaphorically put their head in their hands and, and but they said, oh, God. Uh, uh -huh. And, and, because uh, they really didn't like them and yet they're required by the university to do it. So what they did is, is Ryan, for instance, gives his students some uh, autonomy, some discretion over how they're evaluated. Um, and so they can choose to say, be evaluated by papers or by tests or by, you know, they can essentially fashion 
how they themselves want to be uh, how they themselves want to be evaluated. Uh, I think that's a, a decent step in the right direction. Uh, you know, I think that what you can do, what you're doing, is actually in, in, in fostering the self-assessment is really smart. And I think that what it does is it, you know, we take a step back. Um, uh, if we take a step back, we say, okay, what's the purpose of grades? The purpose of grades is just it's a form of feedback. And the reason we want feedback is we want to know how we're doing. And the reason we want to know how we're doing is we want to get better at something. And I think that point has been lost. That is, we often see grades as the goal. Grades are the whole point of why you're doing what you're doing. And what that does, and the research on this is pretty clear, is that that allows you to perform, quote unquote, quote unquote perform very, very well in the short term and doesn't lead to any kind of enduring, uh, and rarely leads to any kind of enduring learning, or it leads to less uh, profound, deep, conceptual, supple, uh, supple kinds of learning. So, you know, I think that what we, what we should, I don't have a single bullet answer here. I don't know if the answer is eliminating grades. That seems to be a tad radical, but maybe that's the solution. But I think it's um, uh, you know, getting back to first principles, the grades are a form of feedback. I think it's involving kids in the process. Uh, and, um, you know, in some ways, uh, downplaying their, uh, you know, downplaying their significance. I think it's really, really hard to do. I think it's really hard to do. Uh, I think it's something that, that, that parents can do. So when I think about my kids, you know, my kids have, my kids get, my kids are, you know, the oldest ones are middle school, so they're still little. And, um, but our middle schooler uh, has started getting grades for the first time. And it's a grading system of one through seven, you know, seven being the best. It's a screwed up grading system. And, um, you know, what we do, my wife and I do is, is actually, it, to the extent we can, it's not say, oh, you got a, seven, we're so proud of you, but essentially bring her into the conversation uh, to the extent, you know, bring her into the conversation and say, okay, so you got this grade in this class, what do you think about that? Is that seem accurate to you? Is that, you know, have you mastered, you know, if it's a high grade, have you mastered, have you really mastered this material? If you have, was it too easy? Was it challenging? Uh, if you get a lower, if you get a lower grade, you know, so what's going on here? Did you, you know, are you having difficulty? Are you not mastering the material? Um, and just trying to have that conversation. So it's really about, um, you know, mastery and less about, you know, hitting, you know, uh, hitting an objective. And, and I have to say, when I was in, when I was in, especially in high school, I got very, very good, very good grades. Uh, and the reason is not because I was learning anything. Uh, it was because I knew that the way to get good grades was to give the authority figure what she wanted, uh, the way she wanted it, on time and neatly. Uh, and so I think that grades too often foster a sense of compliance rather than a sense of engagement, and it really shortchanges kids over the long haul. So, Dan, I'm intrigued because in the example that you give from your own life, you're not replacing a system with another system. You're actually just caring. And, and I, I wonder if sometimes when we say, okay, so how do we fix this? That we're we're looking to implement another system rather than saying, hmm. well, what we really need here is caring adults, and that may I happen think, in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of it. Although you know, uh, there's also, I think it's also just in, in some ways sort of recasting what it means, um, so that in some ways the the grade isn't the end of the conversation, but the start of the conversation. I mean, that, that, that sounds a little glib, but. So that a grade is, is basically the mechanism that, that, that brings you into a conversation about mastery and helps kids understand 
you know, all right, so wow, you got really good marks in this thing in this particular class or whatever. Um, you know, I ask my kids if if, they, if that happens, like, was this not challenging for you? Um, you know, what you know, was this a good use of your time? Are are you getting these high marks because uh, the work doesn't in, doesn't engage you? That you're just kind of phoning it in because it's too easy. Uh, and I think those are good conversations for kids to have. And so it's less about you know this kind of finger wagging. Why did you not get a good grade? Or this kind of you know understandable, but I think corrosive parental pride. Oh, you're so great. You got a A plus. Uh, it makes it more about mastery and and allows the kid to be involved in a conversation about that. Okay, we're going to give Teresa the last question. We're going to try and be sensitive to your time here. Teresa, you want to go? And then while we're doing that... Oh, man, that, is it not, it's 9 o'clock already. How about that? Uh, I'm clapping. Blue. I want to encourage you to clap Blue. for Bye. Dan Pink. Use a little hand, clapping hand. This has been fantastic. <laughs> Teresa, last question. That's hilarious. Yeah, okay. So um, I was fortunate enough to meet Dan on his um, on his tour, his book tour. And I brought my father with me, who is... He'd probably get me... I'd get in trouble for this, but he's pushing 70. And he was so, I mean, you know, he's from that industrial age, and um, he was so motivated and impressed with your, um, with your, with your talk. And at the very end, you you asked a question, and it's also in your book. And you said, and do you want to share that with everyone? Uh, sure. There, there's actually two questions. One of them is, is there's two questions. To, that's right. It's for people to ask, what's your sentence? That is, what you know, when it's all said and done, what do you want your life to be about? Uh, and it comes from a famous story in politics where uh, Claire Booth Luce asked President Kennedy, she said, a great man is a sentence, uh, you know, and this idea that anybody who ever, you know, it's so hard to achieve anything that uh, if you're trying to achieve 17 things, you're not going to do anything. And that what you really want is a, a great man, she said, is a sentence. That is, you could distill, you know, your, your reason for being here into a sentence. And I think that's very useful for people to ask themselves, you know, what's, what's my sentence? Uh, that can be a kind of north star for navigating your life towards some kind of purpose. I think it's a good question. I think it's necessary. I think it's not sufficient. And there's a second question that, that comes from the literature on habit formation that I think is, is really powerful. Uh, and it's uh, a question that I ask myself. It's a question that I'm probably going to ask myself uh, in probably within the hour, uh, which I usually do as I'm getting ready to go to sleep, uh, which is, the, this question, uh, was I better today than yesterday? Or was I a little bit better today than yesterday? Uh, and that's really, you know, how we make progress. We don't, you know, except for near-death experiences, we don't make major transformations in our lives in a uh, blink of an eye or a snap of the fingers. We do it, you know, slowly over time. And that's really all we can ask for is to be a little bit better than we were yesterday. And I think that, that those, those questions paired together, what's my sentence? And then each day asking yourself, was I better today than yesterday? Uh, can be, you know, they've been really helpful to me, and I think they can they can be really helpful in uh, keeping people centered, keeping people uh, living a life of um, uh, that's aimed towards some kind of purpose, and and allowing people to to get the the, the really the inherent joy and satisfaction of um, of trying to get a little bit better each day. Okay, so I, I agree, and then that was that was what it was for me, and I mean, I'm sitting there with my father, we're 50 years between us, and. You know, he's like, quick, write that question down. Don't forget it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, right. I remember when you said, every, every I remember age. you. I remember you telling me that. Yeah, that's funny. That's, yeah, it's 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 a good it's a good exercise. Uh, there's a we have a little video. Uh, maybe I can try to find it on the uh, and put it up on the chat thing here if I can do that. 
There's a video that explains this in a two-minute little fun uh, animated uh, video that a very talented animator did um, on this. I'm going to try to put the URL up here in a second, guys. Um, so you can actually see a slightly more polished rendition of that than my semi-half-assed um, Wow, somebody else got it before me. How the heck did that happen? Welcome to the it's back crazy, channel. I know. Kristen yeah, Swanson, awesome. you're on fire. <laughs> uh, yep. I was waiting for someone to get it. Very <laughs> good I can't effort, believe Kristen. that. Holy nice moly. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, so there you go. Oh, yeah, right. And Bill Theron says it's also on the Amazon book page. There's another place you can get it. So um, uh, anyway, so I, I think it's a fun, I think it's a really useful exercise. Uh, and you know, like a lot of the exercise that I try to put into um, uh, the books, uh, uh, you know, my my books, it, it's stuff that doesn't require any money. It's free. It's actionable. Uh, people can tinker with them. So um, there you go. I promised Teresa the last word, but I'm going to put in the last word. Go for it, Dan. I love how you organize your books. I love hey, the chapter yeah. summaries in A Free Agent Nation. Uh, I, I really appreciate the referrals to other books and other people. Uh, I, I think it's uh, really terrific. Okay, so we promised you an hour, and we're at the hour. Thanks a lot for that, Steve. That actually, that's actually very meaningful to me. I'm not joking around because I actually take, I actually try very hard. Uh, well, I, re I think very hard about the architecture of the books uh, and try to build the books in a way that I would want. And uh, and, and and no joke, sometimes I get a little flack for that. Um, or, you know, oh, I can't really? believe you put a summary in there. The yeah, tools. Every, it, I, I just want to tell everybody down, or, the tools What's at the a end. toolkit? This is not a serious book if it has a toolkit. I think that's BS, but, um, so it's, but it's helpful for me to hear that from someone else to think that I'm not completely insane. I'll write a letter of support any day you need it. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so big thanks to Dan. Dan, I'm the guy who yeah, sticks around through the end of the movie credits. So I'm going to stay here. We're going to have a post-show chat. But this is, uh, you've done your time, and it's been most appreciated. <laughs> and you can exit just by clicking on File, Exit, and, um, and get back to whatever you need to be doing. But thanks so much for coming tonight. Hey, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun and some, uh, and some great, uh, uh, really just a great conversation. I can't believe that uh, an hour went by that quickly. So thanks for that, and thanks for what you're doing, and, and um, thanks for having conversations. Absolutely. This Thank is you, an Dan. audience that obviously loves you. Thanks, All right, Teresa. All see you guys. Bye. 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 Okay, so Dan's leaving, but we're going to stick around for a little while at least to give you the chance. If you were felt shy about taking the microphone, you can do so now. If you'd like to talk about any aspect of the book, Teresa, it's 3 a.m. in Germany, I think. So yeah, I think I might I might check out this time, but I really appreciate it. It was great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was we worth could, staying up. I did the Red Bull. <laughs> I, I easily could have spent another hour, if not more, kind of drilling down on some aspects of the book. You know, he, we didn't talk about Carol Dweck at all, but he mentions Carol and her work. Uh, you know, there's so much uh, in this book that I really enjoyed, and we could do as much time, if not more, on Free Agent Nation. Not, the book is nine years old, and yet it's so relevant. I was fascinated. And I'm sorry to everyone that I couldn't get all your. I mean, you know, I just tried to. All this, there were so many questions, which is great. I think he said it. You know, it's about the conversation, and as you can see just in the chat, everybody talking. It's like every idea brings on a new one, and um, I think these chats are really valuable. They've got lots of information. People can go back and look and just kind of let it sink in. So if you want to know how to get on the list for these interviews, go to either to conversations.net or futureofeducation.com and just sign up. 
and you'll get email notices from me. Uh, it was fun. We had over 200 tonight and only 20 yesterday. You know, it just goes like that. Sometimes the name is not. Dan's pretty well known. You know, uh, David Simon Garland is, uh, or David, yeah, that's right. Uh, not as well known, but I actually really enjoyed his message as well. I thought he was extremely well spoken. Yeah, and again, everything's actually, recorded. Mentioned everyone to check that out because the whole entrepreneur conversation, especially for the younger, uh, the younger generation, you know, he's under 30 years old and he is just rocking it. He's just gotten a book deal. He's been doing his business since August 2008. He's got his own TV show. You know, he's a great example for I think the the Gen Y that you can you can succeed and just you know it's hustle. So, so all you need to do is people will check that out. Either go to my blog and click through on the event and recording page link, or go to uh, futureofeducation.com or conversations.net, and the recordings are there. And you can find them in the archive sections. Uh, and this will be this will be up, uh, this should probably be up by tomorrow morning, quickly. Yeah, I did think uh, David was great yesterday. Well, okay, I'm so. I'm going to say, um, um, you yeah, say good night? Yeah, I'm going to say good night. Good night, good everyone. <laughs> go USA and the Olympics, I'm excited. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve, and everybody else. Have a good Take one. Take care, Teresa. Thank Bye. you so much for everything. Good night. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Anybody want to grab that microphone? Anybody have something that they really agreed with or didn't agree with tonight that you would want to say? If you'd like to do so, you click on the hand with the green up arrow, and I'll give you the mic. Otherwise, you can put your um, notes in the chat. Deb says, all these writers appear to be a bit ADD. I find it interesting that we drug those kids. To, yeah, you know, that's a whole discussion there, isn't there? Um, it, uh, just such a fascinating, I, I feel as though in Dan's books, there's this thread of how our prosperity is providing a, a change in opportunity. But I also think that it's really related to the, the power shift that the internet brings to the individual. And that we're at this very unique place where we can question the way some things have been done and reshape. Some of the, the things that I'm enjoying the most are the local efforts in my area of people to start or reshape their schools. And um, you know, as much as Dan said he wasn't uh, that. Like I still got the feeling from Dan that the, there was a desire to create kind of a system to. To, to make drive, his um, version of drive, uh, you more readily available. And, and I kind of come, keep coming down to the need for uh, people to be able to feel like they can work locally on things that they really care about. Blanca, I don't know that I'm an expert. What do you think? Is there a way to, f a faster way to change schools at the local level? You know, my guess there is that it's participation. And again, we, we look for systemic solutions, and yet probably those those are one by one, and then just sharing those experiences. Yeah, and I and again, I'm uh, you know my colors start to show here. But I, I do get concerned at, at the moment anybody says, well, how do we scale that or how do we systematize it? If you look in Dan's book, he actually lists five or six schools uh, that he, he felt were really doing things of value. And uh, to me, it's uh, you know kind of that way, which is it's 
looking at individual schools and then shaping from those examples for your own community and your own school. So it was so fun to have uh, people really anxious to talk to James Paul G the other night. Okay, Bill, I was hoping somebody would ask for the mic. There you go. Click on the microphone button in the audio box to turn your mic on. So that's down below the participant. There you go. Now I'm not hearing you. So go ahead and click your mic off and go up to Tools, Audio, and Run the Audio Setup Wizard real quick, and we'll have you come back. Oh, hearing okay, you. Okay, I think uh, I think you might have me now. Yeah, I had an observation, uh, and uh, it might be a little on the philosophical uh, edge of things, but uh, you know, this purposeful, meaningful um, education uh, that we're talking about um, could lead to a more purposeful and uh, meaningful later life for people, and it could reduce our need for uh, meaningless, uh, the meaningless. Acquisitiveness that we uh, that we have, and it would uh, basically change uh, general and greater society for the better. Uh, and it's a possibility. And I was wondering if anyone ever thinks, you know, that that could be the end product of this. You know, I'm not sure I understood, Bill. Can you say that again? Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, you know teaching kids in school to have. Um, a purpose to uh, to to be autonomous, to have mastery, to have purpose. Uh, it would give them a greater sense of um, of meaning for their lives, and uh, a lot of the uh, the useless uh, striving for for material goods that we have uh, in society could be uh, alleviated in some way. Uh, I, I think we're looking at a basic uh, rewiring of the brain um, with some of this uh, this new technology and new ways of learning. And I think that newly rewired brain will have to have uh, a new society to, uh, to fit into. So I, I really like that idea. And I'm particularly fond of the, the entrepreneurship model, not necessarily as a business model, which kind of came up in the interview last night. But just the idea that you are sort of in an apprentice, as a student, you're in an apprentice situation where you can be working on things that will actually make a difference, whether it's a history of your you know, great-grandfather or it's working and building a website for a, you know, a local historical site, that with the Internet now, there's this opportunity for unique endeavors that really would facilitate that kind of thing. And I think what you said is very much in harmony with what uh, the chapter on education uh, from Dan. Any other thoughts on that? So T. Welchke, I'm helping with the transition from the age of schooling to the age of learning. I like that. Okay, T. Welchke, you have the mic. Yeah, it's an exciting prospect because I don't really think anybody wants better schools. We just think we do because that's what we've been taught. But what we want are opportunities for kids to learn at higher and higher levels. And why we would still think that geography 
in the form of a school should determine any kid's opportunity to learn at the highest levels in the 21st century is just a, a mystery to me that I can't accept. We don't need better schools. Every kid has the access to the world. Uh, we just need to be able to help them take advantage of that. Thanks for that. Yong Lee, I'm giving you the mic. So Yong, to turn your microphone on, you click in the audio box, you click on the larger microphone button. It's like an on-off switch, and it will turn your mic on. There okay, I think I have it. Can you hear me? Yes. I really enjoyed the interview, first of all. Thank you very much for that. Um, I work with a group called Social Media Club on their educational initiative called Social Media Club Education Connection. Uh, we go by the name of SMCEDU, and uh, we have a community of educators, students, and business professionals that are trying to advance social media curriculum in higher education. Um, one of the problems that uh, I'm hearing about is uh, the lack of engagement for students to, uh, to want to be involved in their own education. And the topic of the sort of grassroots movement of education versus a centralized system um, is something that I, I see as recurring. Um, I wonder how aware are students, first of all, that they do have a say in their own education? And uh, once they grasp that, what do they do? I mean, um, I, I listen to the topics about mastery and, uh, and wanting to do something that's part of a greater, uh, a greater good, I suppose. But um, how, do you, how do you wake students up, I suppose, is my question. So I think it's a really good question. And you know, from my standpoint, it certainly is caring you know, caring individual teachers who make a difference. I also think that the sort of the untold story here we didn't talk about tonight is the role of parents. You know, and there there will be a sh generational shift because a lot of the parents right now, of children who are in school, don't know about this kind of opportunity. So for them, school is rigor, where rigor is drilling rather than rigor as in self-engagement and self-motivation. So uh, you know, Lorna Costantini is doing a Parents' as Partner series, and I think that's uh, really good. And uh, you know, there, are, there are, um, you know, probably are more opportunities for us to do things like uh, having parent nights where the students teach, the students learn something about technology in order to teach the parents. I thought that's, every time I hear that idea, I think it's brilliant. Um, and Yong, I'm more interested in. I'm also interested in, in what you're doing. So you, this is part of the social media club. Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, fun. I've been wanting to make a connection there. I know that uh, Teresa. Uh, I th if I'm thinking it's the right organization, and, but you're focused on higher ed. We're currently focused on higher education. We do have interest from uh, high schools, from secondary schools. But uh, as our resources are a bit limited now, we want to start at higher education and really focus our efforts there. You know, I didn't mention it to Dan, but in his book, uh, Free Agent Nation, which was nine years ago, he predicts the demise of the high school. And I, you know, that sounds dramatic, and Larry Cuban would, would say it's never going to happen. But I would say there's a change going on. At least I have a daughter who's 16 and a daughter who's 21. And there's a difference between the 16-year-old and the 21-year-old, especially in terms of their peers. And many of her, my 16-year-old's peers are stopping school at the end of 
sophomore, junior year, and going to junior college. I, I think there's some truth to the fact that it's, you know their parents are saying this is not a relevant experience. You don't need it. You know, go right to junior college and, and save us a fair amount of money and finish your school early. So Deborah, I think they're testing out, and then they'll they'll take classes at the local junior college. Yeah, we're sorry to miss Will Richardson's interview with. Um, uh, Collins and what's the what's his co-author on that book? Yeah, I told Will. He, Will has a limit of a hundred people in his illuminate room. I said, next time, call me. We'll do it in our room where where you can get two hundred. I also did an interview with those guys at um, it's on the futureofeducation.com website. There's a, an archive of that interview uh, that I did. Okay, so I can smell dinner. I think it's time for me to go. Hey, sure, appreciated you being here. Oh, tomorrow night, Clay Shirky. Uh, we'll talk about Here Comes Everybody. We'll talk about uh, social changes that he's seeing. Uh, Clay's book, Here Comes Everybody, was probably, uh, I would say, the uh, sort of watershed book for a lot of the people, edu bloggers, or the people in social media and education uh, became kind of a touchstone for a lot of the conversation. So that's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, and in the same room. And I better check my links to make sure we don't get people in two rooms again tomorrow. Thanks, everybody, for coming. And the correct link will be on my blog and in futureofeducation.net and conversations.net. Sure, glad you were here. Have a great night. Take care.